Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are now at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted, with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Let's pray. Father, a, a passage that reveals a glimpse of your holiness. Father, when we read this passage, we are shocked by the swiftness of your judgment. Lord, we confess that our hearts are not prone to thinking this way. Even as believers, we often take you for granted and think of your grace as something that allows for us to act the way we are without any consequence. God, we're sorry for this. We confess this sin. We confess that our hearts 
need a transformation. We need a bigger view of you. A bigger understanding of your holiness. God, we pray that you will open the eyes of our heart today. That we may see your glory. And respond appropriately. Oh, Father, we pray that you will give us ears to hear your word today. Change our hearts. Help us to know you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we began to look at the dramatic contrast between the righteous and a few wicked that were in the early church. We saw a living illustration of Psalm 1. We talked last week of the two types of people in the early church. We saw the righteous and the wicked. The question for each of us to ask ourselves as we think on these two types of people is first, which one of these two types of people do I most resemble? That is a very important question for us to all contemplate. I know it is very tempting for us as we look at passages like this to focus our attention on Ananias and Sapphira to the exclusion of examining our own heart. That's not what this is about. God gives us his word so that we can look at ourselves, examine our hearts, and see how much we need him. So I call all of you today to answer this question. Which one of these two types of people, Barnabas the encourager or Ananias and Sapphira, are you most like? The second question would be, what should I do if I find my heart leaning towards the wicked? (laughs) What should I do if I find myself doing or acting or behaving the way that Ananias and Sapphira acted? What should I do if I find myself tempted with these things of lying to God or sin in general? What should I do? Our passage explains what we need. If we find ourselves moving towards this wickedness, what we all need is what the early church had a full amount of, a great understanding of the holiness of God. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what we need. Thankfully, we can trust also that God is a holy God and that he seeks to make his people holy. We must think on this concept. We must understand who he is. And we must trust in him to accomplish his holy work in us. Last week we started with the righteous. We saw Barnabas was a man who was sacrificially committed to Jesus and his church. We saw in Acts 4, 36 to 37 that Barnabas was an encourager who sacrificially sold a piece of property and gave it with no strings attached to the apostles to distribute as they saw fit. Then we began to examine the dramatic contrast to the righteous Barnabas. That contrast is seen in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira, especially in the actions found in verses 1 to 11. So we began to look at the wicked. In verses 1 to 11, we saw the wicked included the husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira. 
we saw these events unfolded very much like a trial or courtroom scene. The first descendant, or defendant rather, Ananias steps up into the picture, into the courtroom. <coughs> he was the husband. The defendant is questioned in verses 3 to 4 by the prosecution. Peter asked some very revealing questions, didn't he? Ananias was exposed for his lie to sell his property and give all the proceeds to the apostles. Ananias at some point went back on a previous commitment that he had made to God to give it all. And then next we see the verdict is pronounced. The verdict is pronounced to the defendant. We saw that the Peter that Peter pronounced you have not lied to men, but to God. And then, as quickly as he makes the pronouncement of the verdict, judgment comes swiftly. The defendant is literally executed on the spot. And as he heard these words, the Bible says, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And then... The exit of his first of the first defendant was explained. We saw see in verse six the young men got up and covered him up and carried him out, and they buried him. Boy, that's some swift justice, isn't it? Can you imagine a courtroom display like that? Doesn't happen very often, does it? No, it doesn't happen at all. Now today we see the next defendant is introduced to the scene. The second defendant, Sapphira. Notice in verse 7 it says, Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. His wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Sapphira is from a Hebrew name that literally means the beautiful one. Again, we have a case of irony. The one known as beautiful was actually very dirty on the inside. Not very beautiful in her heart and her actions. Notice also that next that the defendant is questioned again by the prosecution. The next defendant. In verse 8 it says, And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? This time the amount of questions for the defendants, defendant is less. However, there is an answer that speeds up the verdict. Peter asked Sapphira whether she sold the land for the price Ananias had previously given him. When she said yes... She revealed her own wicked heart. It was quick. Next, Peter asked a question which assumed her guilt. Peter turned the lights on and exposed her as a co-conspirator and lying to the Spirit of the Lord. Peter says your lie was putting the Spirit of the Lord to the test. Peter confronted her and said, in effect... Did you think God would just let this lie slide? That's what he was getting at. What were you thinking, Sapphira? Were they thinking, well, God is a gracious God. 
He will let us change our mind and give a portion of the money instead of all of what we committed to give to the church. I mean, come on. We need to be able to take care of ourselves if something bad happens. After all, we're now following this Jesus guy, and everybody hates us if you follow Jesus. We need some extra income. Oh, my dear friends, this is often what we do with our sin. We seek ways to justify our sin. The scariest thing is we often use God's grace as an excuse for our sin. This, beloved, is putting God to the test. We must not do this. Do you understand what I mean by putting God to the test and using God's grace as an excuse for our sin? Oh, how often we find ourselves. Have you, do you have that one quote-unquote besetting sin that you constantly say, well, you know, I sure am God, glad God is a gracious God because I just can't kill that one. That's called making an excuse for your sin. Using grace as an excuse for your sin. Oh, beloved, do you understand that is Ananias and Sapphira all over again? That's a scary thought, isn't it? Now, if we were all honest, we could all say that we are like this couple, aren't we? Has anybody done this before? How many of you have made the commitment to the Lord? God, I'll never do that again. And then did it. How come we're all breathing? Oh, friends. I think it is very important for all of us to realize just how vulnerable we are to falling into this kind of sin. I want to make this very, very clear. Realizing our vulnerability to this sin is a very important first step to avoiding that sin. This is so important. Understanding your vulnerability to sin is the first step. You must see yourself as Ananias and Sapphira. You must see yourself as on the brink at any time of doing what Ananias and Sapphira did. If you don't see yourself that way, you are right on the edge of falling off the cliff. Again, God was using these events to show the church two very important lessons. Two very important things. One... He was saying to the church, you are all vulnerable of sinning. You are vulnerable of falling into this kind of sin. And second, God's name and glory are important to be maintained by his people. That's what he was saying. It's the same thing that happened back in, at Mount Sinai when God gave the law. When he gave the law and he was giving these things right away. He began to show his justice. You're going to carry my name? I am holy, and I must be followed and reverenced as holy. Beloved, we are all vulnerable to sinning. We are also called by God to wear his name and be holy people. Take that serious. 
That's what he's saying. Friends, anyone who identifies themselves with God's people is in a very important position, a very important role. You are God's representatives. You know you are called saints. That literally means holy ones. We wear the name holy one. Do we act like it? This is what God was saying. Notice again how seriously God takes his honor among his own with the verdict. The verdict is pronounced to the defendant. In verse 9 it says, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Man, is this not shocking? Can you imagine what that woman was thinking? She learned a lot in one sentence. My husband's died, and I'm going to die too now because of a sin. Again, we see here the special relationship the apostles had with God at the establishment of the church. Peter had insider information, didn't he, on who would die and when. Specifically, here he was given prophetic word, and he says, you're dead just like your husband died. Again, this is not normative for today, but what it does affirm is God has sovereign power over every single breath a person makes. That is important to note. It is so important for us to make a distinction here that is often missed. This story does not tell us that we should expect other apostles with this kind of power and prophetic abilities. That's not what the point of the story is in the events. The point is... God is in so much control that he's able to stop a life as a means of judgment in a split second. That's the point. God can, and I'm going to put it real harshly, God can kill anybody at any moment if he decides to. Wow. But that's not the one we talk about. <laughs> Let's talk about that. God can kill anybody in the room at any moment if he decides to. Just like he did in the Old Testament with Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah, God can bring judgment in a moment's notice. So a healthy fear of God should be in everyone in this room. You need it. God can bring judgment, just like I said. By the way, a realization of God's swift judgment is protective for us who believe. Why is that important? See, do you understand that it is good to know that God can take you out at any second for sin? Why is it good? Because it does have a way of keeping you a little bit in line. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. If you know that it, in, in, at any moment God can say, that's enough breathing for you, you're dead. You're going to kind of depend on him a little bit more, aren't you? You're going to look to him a little bit more, aren't you? 
you're going to evaluate your heart just a little bit more, aren't you? Oh, beloved, I think we all need this a little bit more, don't we? Would you not agree our whole culture needs this? A whole country needs this. Notice the judgment is executed on the defendant. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. Again, this is shocking for us at first glance, isn't it? But ladies and gentlemen, there is no room for questioning God on his swift judgment. Friends, I'll never forget the first time I read the story or you know, the first couple times I read the story of Uzzah and him reaching out to catch the ark. I was very much like David. I just can't get this. David actually got angry at God is what it says. I'm like, you can tell David wasn't perfect, right? (laughs) But at the same time, you read that, we we have a wrong view. He's the creator of all things. And if he pronounces a capital punishment judgment, he's perfectly just to do it. If Uzzah touches the ark, and he wasn't supposed to touch the ark, even if it was to keep the ark from falling on the ground, guess what? God is perfectly holy to kill Uzzah in a second. He can do what he wants. He's just. Does that fly against your thinking? Well, I think it does. In our culture, we have a real hard time with that passage. And passages like Nadab and Abihu and Ananias and Sapphira. The reason we're shocked and outraged by these kinds of passages is we think way too little of our sin and way too little of God's holiness. We think of sin as, oh, no big deal. (laughs) But God doesn't look at any sin as no big deal. It's not no big deal to God ever. Not any sin you ever do. I'm convinced. Like I said last week, our problem is we fear God way too little in evangelical Christianity. Way too little. so thankful that I'm reading some of these books that from the old guys for this doctoral program. You know what I'm finding? They fear God. It's amazing. You read these old preachers of the gospel and what they were all about, and they had a high view of God's holiness. They understood things. I was shocked. You know, you do, uh, I can do word searches of fear in, my, in, in some of my programs. Fear of the Lord. You can put that little phrase in there. All the modern commentators, very rarely is fear of the Lord even mentioned. But you go back to the ancient fathers, the Nicene fathers and all those books that I have on my, and you do a push, you do a search of fear of the Lord, you would be shocked. It's like hundreds of references 
to the fear of the Lord. That's a that's shocking. You got fear of the Lord in the old or early church fathers. They got it, but now it's no big deal. We are told in the scriptures that God is gracious and kind. And ladies and gentlemen, He is. Praise the Lamb. However, this does not mean that He is not also just and wrathful. One of the worst displays of hypocrisy coming out of the professing Christian church is this idea of using God's grace as a cover for our sinful behavior. Everybody's making an excuse and using God's grace for the excuse. And by the way, I think some of the young, restless, and reformed group fall into this specifically. I'm being honest. Often, we use grace as a cover for our liberty. We say this is all about our liberties, when in fact we are saying it's a cover for our sin. We need an Ananias and Sapphira moment. When are we going to take it serious? God is a holy God. God purified the church by displaying his swift justice in the early church. Notice the dead defendant that's carried off and buried. And the young man came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Just as Peter had prophesied, the men came in and took Sapphira's body away like Ananias's body. The wicked Ananias and Sapphira were exposed for their lack of genuine commitment to the Lord and his bride. And God acted with immediate justice. So what was the response to this swift judgment handed down by God? Beloved, this is the heart of what I want to focus our attention on today. These results are what we need in this church. These results are what we need in each one of our lives. Each one of us need this. We have seen that the early church was characterized by great power in preaching the gospel message, as Acts 4.33 stated. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Second, we saw that the early church was characterized by great grace at work in the lives of its members. And abundant great grace was upon them all. Today, we see in our passage the third characteristic of, an, of the early church. Here you go. Mark it down. Boy, I want it. Y'all want it in your church? And great fear came over all those who heard of it. And great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard of these things. Beloved, this was why God did the events. Why God allowed the events to unfold. The church needed a healthy fear of God. Why did God allow Ananias to step on the landmine that he did? God knew they were plotting this sin. Why didn't God stop them? The answer is to glorify himself. 
to show off God's holiness, to show the church and the community this is who God is. God is holy and should be treated as holy by His holy ones. I want to make a couple of important points regarding this passage as we've looked at it. First, God requires His people to be different from the world. Folks, you can slice this, dice this, change this, do whatever you want to do, but it's very simple. We should be distinctly different from the world and community we live in. Yet, it is very hard for anybody to distinguish between true believers and non-believers in our culture and our society. Would you not agree? How many times have you been shocked when you have a conversation and all of a sudden one of your coworkers says to you, I'm a Christian too. I didn't know you were a Christian. You didn't? You didn't know I was a Christian? Yeah, we're real quick to find it when they aren't there, but how about when they point out you don't look like one either? Folks, being the bride of Christ means we are his set-apart bride. Holy people. Different. Distinct. Second, God takes his honor serious among those who identify with him. You say, well, I'm a Christian. To know what you're saying when you say that. If you say I'm a Christian, you're saying I'm a holy one. If you say you're a holy one, God's going to take it serious. Here you go. Here's the real kick in the teeth. Every time we say or identify ourselves with him and then don't live it, we're doing exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. Oh, do you understand what I just said? That's scary, isn't it? Every time you say, I'm a believer, I identify with him, and then you don't demonstrate that holy character in front of others, you are basically lying about who you say you are. Or you're not being true to your identity. Again, how do we get out of this room without falling on our faces? But what we do is we undermine our sin and think, no big deal. But notice, third, sin is much more sinful to God than we are prone to view it. (laughs) Oh, this is so true, isn't it? How do you view your sin? Oh, I am so much looking forward to the men's conference thing on that Saturday, first Saturday of May, for all men in the church. We're going to be going over purity, what men should look like. I'm so much looking forward to this. You know, our problem with that issue ultimately comes down to this. 
we don't think it's that bad. We justify it. We justify pornography as, you know, I just am a needy man. What? Oh, beloved, sin is much more sinful to God than we're prone to think of it. We need a healthy fear of this. We need a better understanding of just how sinful our sin is. Don't we? This is what Ananias and Sapphira does for us. Fourth, God desires for his own to have a healthy fear of him. Obvious. Throughout the passage, it's being made clear, isn't it? I've been on somewhat of a mission for the last week. I've been studying the concept of the fear of the Lord. And you know, I believe the fear of the Lord is another one of those concepts like a slave of Christ that has been misunderstood and played down by evangelical Christianity. You know, John MacArthur brought out the point that the concept of slave was downplayed over the last hundred years in church. Well, I think I have found a theological partner that has been underexplained and downplayed. I think it's the fear of the Lord. We don't like the idea of being the slave of God. Well, part of the reason why people don't like to be called the slave of God is because they don't want to submit themselves to anyone in authority. You know why we don't like the idea of a fear of the Lord? Because we think that we should be our own judge. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, it should make you quake in your boots. Who are we to evaluate and think that our standard of holiness dictates whether or not God gives us justice or mercy? That is crazy. We look up at a holy God and say, I'm not that bad. The word fear in the Bible is something many people try to avoid, don't they? When we get over to the New Testament, the hyper-dispensationalist try to take it all the way out of the Bible and downplay it all the way to reverence and respect only. You know, I, I have a problem with this. I really do. When I read Ananias and Sapphira, man, I see too much continuity in this. I'm, I'm, I'm leaning back the other way now on the continuity issue. Lots of it here. Just like God wiped out Ananias, or Nadab and Abihu, here we go. He's wiping out people for not being holy. Interesting, isn't it? Part of this be, is because of the two passages that at first glance may be taken to play down the fear of God. You can write these down and look them up later. Romans 8.15. I really want to preach two sermons, another two sermons after this, just on those two passages. But I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go back and keep going and act. But Romans 8:15 and 1 John 4:17. 
But just to summarize those two passages, I don't think these two passages are saying, don't fear God. What they are saying is, as we humbly submit and rightly understand who God is and what he has done, we don't have to be concerned with God's justice or his just wrath or or discipline. In other words, as we rightly find our place as God being our Father, we will see things properly and we won't have to worry about fear of God judging us. Oh, folks, I've been thinking on this all week. I think all too often we step out under the umbrella of God's goodness and His grace because of sin. And we are downplaying that God is a just God and He will discipline us. If we humbly seek God and know He will provide grace to walk with Him and then we will enjoy Him forever and we won't have to fear God. But I think at the same time that those things don't go away. I'm still fearing God. I still need it. It's still there. Still understand who God is. Don't we see this problem in our culture with the lack of holding people accountable for evil? Don't we? Al Mohler speaks of this moral revolution that's going on in our country that we're in the midst of. Just to summarize what he's getting at is, is that what 50 years ago was considered wrong or evil, and people would speak against that and say, this is evil. Now, those very things, you are evil if you speak against those things. That is like everything has been turned upside down. If I say homosexual marriage or homosexual uh, relationships is an abomination before God, I'm actually unkind and unloving and evil. It's an abomination before God. I'm sorry. God hates sin. And it will be judged. Either by the person or the son will take it. I would suggest the reason we are in this moral revolution is because our view of God's holy justice is a distant thought in the minds of our culture. In fact, this is the scariest thing. The church itself has been downplaying God's just wrath within its own walls for years. So the world looks at us and does not see a fear of God from even his own people. So what do you think they're doing and acting the way they act? Because his own people don't have a fear of him. understand this is exactly what happened with Israel we're doing the same exact thing look friends God is righteous 
And he has deposited his spirit within every true believer. His Holy Spirit. We should live in a manner that is set apart and honors him. And I want to make sure you understand this starts in the heart. It is not about being clean on the outside. And look, we ain't going to start setting all these kind of standards. you got to wear a certain clothes and the shirt, your skirts have to be a certain length. How about this? Ladies, cover up. I'm being honest. Men, check your eyes. You're sinning. Dress appropriately. Men, check your heart. not about a certain length of your skirt. You say, well, cover up, Mike. That's awfully harsh. No. Listen, a healthy fear of God, you want to do whatever you can to keep your brothers from stumbling. You don't want to see them fall on their face dead. You care about them. I believe a fear of God is, a, is actually a close partner of genuine faith and repentance. If you don't have a healthy awareness of the holy justice of God, then true repentance is nowhere to be found. Listen to this quote by Calvin in his Institutes. Repentance proceeds from a sincere fear of God. Before the mind of the sinner can be inclined to repentance, he must be aroused by the thought of divine judgment. But when once that thought that God will one day ascend his tribunal to take an account of all words and action has taken possession of his mind, it will not allow him to rest or have one moment's peace, but will perpetually urge him to adopt a different plan of life and that he may be able to stand securely at the judgment seat. Hence the scripture. When exhorting to repentance. Often introduces the judgment. The subject of judgment. As Jeremiah. Lest my fury come forth like a fire. And burn that, that none can quench it. Because of the evil of your doings. Jeremiah 4.4. 4. Paul in his discourse to the Athenians says this. In Acts 17. Quote. The time of ignorance of God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. The same thing is repeated in several other passages. Sometimes God is declared to be a judge from the punishments already inflicted, thus leading sinners to reflect that worst weights, uh, worse awaits them if they do not quickly repent. Oh, you get it? End quote. He knows it. He understands it. Read it. He understands. Fear of God leads to repentance. And I'm still working through this. I have to admit to you a little bit. The more I think on this, the more I'm, 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 I'm shocked. I've been thinking through Hebrews and how that fits. Beloved, I think our, our in, in 2 Corinthians talking about repentance 
I don't think I think the fear of God is still the beginning of repentance is the beginning of repentance even after you believe. It still is. Now, now I know Christ has paid for my sin. I'm it's paid for, right? So when I sin, I I I can't say, well, you know, God's going to judge me for this. Or can I? Well, I'll tell you this. I think our, our wrong view of once saved, always saved is really causing some problems. I do think that if we go down this track of thinking, I can really do anything I want to do and still be all right with God. That is antinomianism, and that is not what the Bible talks about. Listen, if you are dead in your sins and you're in a bunch of sin, don't make don't say Jesus paid for your sin. Once saved, always saved. You didn't have genuine faith. I'm sorry. Well, Mike, you're you're questioning my salvation. No, I'm not. You talk to the Lord on your own. If you're not walking with Jesus, don't have assurance, I'll tell you that. You need a healthy fear of God. And believer, I don't know about you. I don't want to displease my God, do you? Would you like your name to be recorded? God killed you because you weren't wearing his name properly. Do you understand my church family? Feeling about feeling bad about getting caught or being sad because of the consequences of your sin or being broken over not living up to others' expectations of you? That is not a fear of God. This is why accountability can only go so far. Listen to me. Accountability can only go so far. Brothers and sisters, we can be, all of the guys can be on covenant eyes and have everything put out there for everybody to see what's going on. And you will find a way around it. And if you're caught, the guilt of getting caught, the, the feeling of being rejected by your own spouse or your spouse going, shaming you, that isn't enough to change your heart either. Oh, beloved, we need a fear of God. Oh, we need it, don't we? I'm tempted to give you a hundred verses, but I cut it back. So get ready. You ready to write? Here we go. I'm going to show you. Look at these. Second Corinthians or Chronicles 19.7. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or taking of a bribe. Pretty clear, isn't it? Job 28, 28. And to, a man, to, and to man he said, 
Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and depart and to depart from evil is understanding. Psalm 111.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 8.13 Hope you're all writing them down. You want something to really help you? To kill those sinful thoughts that you that besetting sin? How about memorize all these? These will get you. This will help you. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Wow. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth, I hate. Proverbs 10.27 The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Ananias and Sapphira. Proverbs 14.27 The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snare of death. Proverbs 19.23, The fear of the Lord leads to life, so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Boy, I want that one, don't you? Ecclesiastes, the sum of all things, the book of Ecclesiastes. What does Solomon say at the end of his life? He says, the conclusion... When all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. How about let's go to the New Testament. Oh no, that's an Old Testament concept, Mike. Not New Testament. It's a New Testament concept. Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you have also always obeyed, not all as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do, to work for his good pleasure. Now, I don't know about you guys, but we're real quick to skip to verse 13. It is good. God is working. But it is a command. Work out your salvation. And the command includes... A very important means for it to happen. How do you do this? With fear and trembling. Interesting, isn't it? 1 Peter 1.17 If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's works, well, he's my father, he'll let it go. Conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Boy, I think... I'm not positive, but I think we have a wrong understanding of parent-child relationships. I think we're putting glasses on, our cultural glasses, and we're reading the Bible and seeing things wrong. I, you know why I think this? The more I read the New Testament, the more I think about this father-son relationship, there should be a holy reverential fear of the father. Really? Yes. When you look over at Hebrews, it says every one of them scourges them. Look up that word. I haven't scourged my children yet. Hmm. Conduct yourself 
in fear during the time of your stay, knowing that you were redeemed with per- not with redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited for your from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. I got more. First Peter two seventeen, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Acts nine thirty one, you're gonna see this is the pattern of the early church. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 2 Corinthians 5.11 Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we are... what. What we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. This will be on the men's purity thing. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Are we getting the point? Hebrews 10, look over there, and we'll close with this. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without the mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled under the foot, underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he, ha- he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who, has, who said... Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Wow, look at verse 31. Woo! It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think this fear of the Lord is the thing that's going to cause us turn to God we need it don't we I believe the Lord wants his people to walk with a healthy fear of him and we know to and we need to know if we get outside of his gracious arm of protection we are vulnerable to his stern hand of discipline this is what the warnings of Hebrews 12 are all about and people If you wander away from the faith, you need to ask yourself a question. Am I showing evidence of true conversion? Let me ask you a question. If somebody asked you, questioned you about your salvation, how would you respond? Somebody asked you, said a statement like this, after seeing your life for a while, they said, you know what, I just want to let you know I'm concerned because your life doesn't really reflect 
a true believer. How would you respond? How would you respond? Would you say this? Who are you to question my salvation? Would you say this? Who do you think you are judging me? Would you say this? Oh, that's a travesty. I need Christ. Will you help me? Pray for me. I need to make sure my heart's right. That's the response of a true believer. Do you understand? I think we all need to examine ourselves in light of a holy God. Remember this. It is not how good you are that determines whether or not you're right with God. If you've listened to this message and not felt conviction, then you have missed the point. One thing is very clear. You have only one hope of holiness. And his name is Jesus Christ. Confess your sin and turn to him. He is your hope. Let's pray. Weighty subject, Lord. Weighty truths. You know, my own heart, Lord, just totally, totally in need of you. Thank you for this week, Lord, in my own preparation. Thank you, you've shown me that my, my heart is even still now prone to try to get out from underneath your hand of protection. God, I pray that you constantly call me back to yourself. Call all of us back to yourself. Remind us of who you are. Remind us that our hope is found in Christ alone. Remind us that it is finished in Christ. We need you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.